Let's open our Bibles to Luke 16. If you have a prayer slip or visitor slip, if you'd pass those over, uh, we will gladly receive them. And thank you for sharing that with us. So for some time now, we have given our attention on the last message of the year or the first uh, message of a new year to this theme of every year, the year of the Bible. And the purpose is really simple, and that is a yearly challenge for you to bring the Scripture into your life every day. Every day. Um, to, maybe, to select a, a Bible reading program, a plan. And you know what the best one is? The one you use. <laughs> That's the best one. So maybe this year you would want to start out by, I'm going to read the New Testament. I'm going to read the Gospels. Maybe you're just, you want to plan to read through the Word of God. There, there is every plan conceivable. We have a, a few of them out in the resource area, but everybody's digital now. And uh, I've, I've been convinced for years they even have one for left-handed bowlers. So, I mean, you can find one that will fit your life. Get one. Begin your day in the Word of God. Begin your day in prayer to the God who reigns over your life. And walk with Him. Walk with Him all the days of your life. So I, this urgency I have. It's possible to come to church for decades and not, and not really take that in. And not be growing spiritually in your knowledge of the Word and applying it to your life. This church exists to not only worship the living God, but to equip God's people uh, to study, to show ourselves approved to Him. And so I offer this challenge for good and strong reasons. I can't think of any resource that declares so clearly the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. The salvation declared on its pages. There's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ is the way, He's the truth, and He's the life. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And that whoever believes in me shall live even though he dies. Another reason we emphasize this is because of the commands and the legacy of Scripture. Uh, the Bible says we're to study to show ourselves approved unto God. So many verses. I think of Psalm 119, 176 verses, the longest chapter in the Bible, committed to emphasize the value and the importance of treasuring God's Word. The weapon that Scripture is, is another reason. Uh, it's a sword. It's living. It's active. It goes to the deepest part of a human being, revealing things that we need to see. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God shall stand forever. Amen. And we need that. We need a sword. We need God's power and protection over our life. Vody Bauckham uh, wrote some time ago, I don't think most parents have the slightest idea how difficult it is to grow up in today's philosophical climate and to hold on to any concept of absolute truth. And so the way we combat that is to say God's truth stands. It's, it, it stands. It's, it, you could build your life on it. In fact, we must... The protection that Scripture provides, it keeps us from sin. 
It gives light in the challenges and trials and uncertainties of life. I I thought of Isaiah 54, verse 17, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. The Lord's word is our power and our stay. And then I would mention the fruit and blessing that comes through obedience to God's word. So Jesus said in John 15, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So in this, on this last day of the year, if you haven't thought about how to bring the word of God into your life every day, take this challenge and make this year a year that you seek the Lord in his word. I want to hold up two passages of Scripture this morning. One emphasizes the sufficiency of Scripture, and the other, the sustaining power of the Word of God. The first is from Luke 16, and it's a terrible passage, terrible in the sense of frightening. I mean, this is a sober uh, reality uh, that death is coming, and um, where, where am I going to go when I die? I think Jesus is addressing the hypocrisy of the Pharisees who cared nothing about the needs of people. That that is also true in Luke 15 where he tells the the story of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. He's really in the back of his mind doing battle with the Pharisees where it says in Luke 15.1, the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. And then he tells those three stories and it's a rebuke and a a powerful rebuke to their self-righteousness. But here we, we come to... Um, a comparison between a rich man and Lazarus. And it just a tale of two men. So as we look at the sufficiency of Scripture in this passage, follow me on this tale of two men, beginning in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. Uh, this, just a, a, a few word studies here, clothed is in the imperfect tense, meaning he continually clothed himself. It was his ongoing habit to wear the best there was. And purple indicates royalty and luxury. Purple dye was obtained from uh, this, the pigment of fish um, skin or scales or species of mussels. It was a a very expensive, very costly way to dye clothing. It was the sign of royalty and luxury. Uh, Fine linen uh, uh, often referred to the Egyptian flax. It It was used for undergarments. They wrapped mummies with this fine cloth. And some linen was so fine, it was spoken of as woven air. It says in the text that he feasted sumptuously. He had the best food, the best amenities. He had the best this world had to offer. Life was one big party. In fact, the the burning question of the morning was, what can I have to eat today? What can I enjoy from this vast wealth that I have today? He cared nothing about God or others. 
This story was apparently meant for the Pharisees. It does say in verse 14 of this chapter, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And so Jesus holds up a contrast that's just hard to believe. A rich man contrasted with a poor man who was living in absolute poverty. That word poor in description is the one, the word Jesus used in Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, meaning a destitute spirit, one that doesn't see any righteousness in and of ourselves, but absolute poverty with regard to our need for God. His name was Lazarus. God is my help. God, a help, is what it means. And he was laid at the gate. Now this is, it sounds like somebody lovingly placed him at the gate. The word is balo. It's really a powerful word. It means to cast, to fling. It was used of Jesus being led by the Spirit in Mark 1, uh, where, where Jesus was cast into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. He was thrust into the wilderness. Here it's a picture of disregard. He was just thrown there. This poor man was just thrown at the gate of this rich man. And not only that, he was full of sores. They covered his body and they were oozing. It's hard to think of a more pathetic person. He desired this poor man. He desired to be fed what fell from the rich man's table. And the idea um, from the, the things that fell from time to time from his table that they might sweep him up off the floor and bring him out to the gate where he lay. It reminds me of uh, the prodigal son where he's living in the backwash of his awful decisions and he's sitting in the pigsty and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the, the pigs ate. Or the Syrophoenician woman in Mark chapter 7 when she came to Jesus and begged him that, to come and help her daughter who was demon-possessed. And Jesus, speaking in a dispensational form, he said, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. That sounds so cold. But she responds, she says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he says, your daughter is made well, go in peace. She knew that the one she was talking to had the power to pull it off. One commentator speaking of this scene in Luke 16, we could take this picture of the dog licking his sores, and it does speak of dogs licking his sores. His, His hunger was unsatisfied and the dogs were the only comfort that he had. One commentator says, we could take this picture of the dogs licking his sores in two ways. On the one hand, it could be seen as reflecting the depths of his misery and wretchedness, for sure. But on the other hand, it it is possible that Jesus wanted to show that the only creatures concerned about his need were the dogs. And don't think of a poodle or a golden retriever or a beagle. No, dogs in the first century, they roamed the street and ate the garbage. They were viewed as an off-scouring and undesirable. That the only, one who, only ones who cared about him, the only creatures who cared about him were the dogs who licked their sores. Obviously, the rich man wasn't putting ointment on them. His only care came from the dogs. Well, something happens, whether you're rich or you're poor. 
You have an appointment with death. We have a death to die. It's appointed unto man once to die, then the judgment. And Jesus takes us in this story uh, on, on the sobriety of that. And he holds up one of two places. I don't think Jesus would mislead us on the future in this parable. And while I don't think uh, the purpose necessarily is to work out all of our um, thoughts and beliefs on the afterlife, this certainly informs it. He says nothing about the burial of the beggar. In verse 22, he says, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And so... He doesn't say anything about the burial of the beggar, and some have taken that he was just taken right into the presence of God by the angels. However, Jesus doesn't mention Lazarus' burial because being a beggar, likely, more likely, his body was just discarded in an unmarked grave. It mentions Abraham's bosom. What's that all about? Well, that's a Jewish idea. To be in Abraham's bosom is to, to the Jew is to be in paradise. Abraham was the father of the faithful, and so the, the phrase, the bosom of Abraham, was a common one to the Jew. It was a metaphor for heaven. Because Abraham was the father of the faithful, the one whom God had made his everlasting covenant to be close to Abraham was to be in the very presence of heaven. So Lazarus was not made right with God by his poverty, Lazarus appears to be a man who accepted his lot in life without bitterness, without anger, a man who had been faithful in little things, and now he's carried away into the bosom of Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. Now, what happens at death? That's a good question. Let's look at the parable, and maybe I could just say right up front, uh, we, have, we had a funeral this week right here in this room. A member of our congregation, uh, Bill Myers, at the age of 93, fell asleep in Christ. What happens when someone dies? Are we left in the dark on that question? Absolutely not. The scripture couldn't be more clear that in, in a saving faith relationship with Christ, I have the assurance that when I breathe my last in this world, I will be in the presence of God. Awaiting an even glorious, a further glorious hope in the resurrection. But the Bible is also clear that to, to die without that saving relationship with Christ means that I die in my sins and I perish and the Bible doesn't hold back. Certainly, Jesus Christ does not hold back in speaking of the horror and the warning of an eternal judgment, an everlasting judgment. It, picking up in verse 23, and in Hades, being in torment, this rich man lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to, to dip the end of his finger in water and to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Jesus elsewhere in 
Matthew 25 and Mark 9 speaks of the, the, the suffering of being without Christ and without hope in this world. He taught in uncertain terms that there is an eternal punishment. So what's this rich man doing? It's a fixed situation. It's not like you can float over to Abraham's bosom and I'd rather be over there. No, the, the emphasis in Scripture is that your eternal destiny is determined in this life, not in the one to come. If left to ourselves, we would never choose God or one God. We'd live for ourselves and love our sin, wouldn't we? And the hope of God's overcoming grace in the gospel to change our rebel heart and intents and to set us on the path that leads to life, it's a narrow road. Few there are who find it, Jesus said. Wide and broad is the way that leads to destruction. There are many on that road. Be born and start living and you're on that road. And I find it interesting, this rich man who's been bossing people around all his life is even bossy in Hades. Father Abraham, why don't you send Lazarus to come down here and to dip his finger in some water and put it on my tongue? It's miserable down here. While you're not doing anything else. In Luke 16, the rich man seems surprised. Alistair Begg refers to his response as the testimony of one surprised to be in hell. Would you be surprised if you breathed your last today and you went to hell? Would you be surprised? What is the only way you would know that you were deceived? Somebody showed you. And maybe in this paralyzing moment, you would see your deception. You're trusting in your rank. You're trusting in your station. You're trusting in your good works. You're trusting in your work career. You're trusting in, well, my kids aren't in jail. And you've racked up these things in your mind that are the paths of righteousness as you see it, but it's not God's righteousness. And while you may think all is well in this life, you need to think again that your idea of righteousness and your idea of salvation matches what God has said in His Word. Come on, Pastor, it's New Year's Eve. Great time to think of life and death. George MacDonald said the one principle of hell, of hell is, I am my own. I'm reminded of this condemned criminal in Great Britain's history, Charlie Peace, who listened to a minister reading the Word of God at his committal as he was making his way to be put to death. And he said when, when he found out that the minister was reading about heaven and hell, he looked at the preacher and said, Sir, if I believed what you and the church of God say, and even if England were covered with broken glass from coast to coast, I would walk over it on hands and knees and think it worthwhile just to save 
one soul from an, an eternal hell like that. There's no back door. What, you really think you're going to negotiate your way out of that? It is fixed. It is marked with torment and anguish. And he's there not because he's rich. He's, he, he's there not because he's privileged. We should, we should really push back against this class envy we see in our culture. Whether somebody has a lot of stuff or not, what's that to me? I have what God wants me to have. I need to be satisfied with that. I'm called to be content. Not be, not be bitter because he has more than I do. He wasn't in hell because he was rich. It was because the fruit of his life revealed a disdain for God and others. It was all about him, and he had no room to serve God or others, certainly not the lecherous man at his gate. Faith without works is dead, an indictment to the Pharisees. So his appeals, he gets bossier. His appeals to Father Abraham escalate. Verse 27, he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send them to my father's house. Why? He had five brothers. And he was burdened about them. Everyone in hell is an evangelist. Everyone. And I am familiar with some of the scoffing and the skepticism that is part of our culture. But there's a payday someday. And so he, he's, he's burdened for his brothers. Strange that that had not been the case before. We're good people, he probably thought. Look how wealthy we are. God certainly has shined on us, and we have special status. The mockers of today will become those who plead for rescue of their loved ones. The time to plead is now. The time to repent is now. The time to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ is now. Even if Lazarus were to rise from the dead, Father Abraham says, even if Lazarus were to rise from the dead and go warn your brothers, that's not powerful to get them to change. Now, notice what sustains us spiritually while we live. Verses 27 or 29 through 31, Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Now, follow me on this. <laughs> this is one of the most powerful statements on the sufficiency of the word of God to change a heart. So he's in hell. He's worried about his five brothers. Hey, look, why don't you send Lazarus to go warn them? What did Father Abraham say here? A picture of God. What did he say? They have Moses and the prophets. What's that mean? They have the Bible. Well, that's just the Bible. Don't we respond that way? The Bible in America is bought more than it's read. It's kind of a lucky charm people carry around. When it's God's voice to us on how to be saved. So, you know, we... We gravitate towards the sensational. Man, somebody rose from the dead. 
I'd surely believe if I saw Jesus and his miracles. Beware of the sensational. Beware of a diet that is light and fluffy and sugary that doesn't cause you to do a deep dive into what the Word of God says. It's no substitute for spiritual food. Jesus said, I have food to eat that you know not of. My food is to do the will of Him who sent me. And beware of the spectacular. Certainly, if, if Lazarus were to rise from the dead and go and warn them, all would be well. They would be spared from coming to this place. But it's not the spectacular. Do you remember when Satan came and tempted Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew 4? Say yes. Okay. So, he was tempted. <laughs> he he was tempted in this way. He had been fasting 40 days and 40 nights, and then he was hungry. Well, I guess so. And Satan came to him, turned these stones into bread. Jesus quotes scripture, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every mouth, every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then Satan comes and tempts him with the spectacular. He, he lifts him up. He he takes him um, to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said, hey, jump off. You're the son of God. And Jesus' response was, you, you shall not put the Lord your God to a test. I find it interesting that Satan quotes Scripture in his temptation to Jesus. And then the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. What was so compelling about that temptation? That Satan had the power to give it. He's the prince of the power of the air. And Jesus said, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Beware of the spectacular. Beware of the sensational. Find your soul satisfying meat and drink through a personal intake of God's word in your life. Learn to cherish his word, to savor it in your heart. The problem is not with God and His promises. The problem is with us. Back to Luke 16. What a, what a response. If, they, if, they, if He doesn't hear Moses and the prophets, and sometimes God is often brought in the dock, and He has said, put on trial. You know, there's not enough proof. There's not enough witness. Here he says, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, if they don't hear the preaching of the word, neither will they be convinced if someone rises from the dead. The Bible was written that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing you might have life in his name. Now, let me look quickly with you at Luke 18, and it will be quickly. Here we move from the sufficiency of Scripture to the sustaining power of Scripture. And he begins in verse 1 with a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. So at the beginning of each year, these twin disciplines in the Christian life are always uppermost in my mind. The Word of God and prayer. The Word of God and prayer. The Word of God and prayer. Jesus said in Luke 18, verse 1, that we should always pray and not what? Lose heart. Oh, may God so move in us that we're running to Him in prayer. 
that we're learning the power of having prayer in an ongoing way through our lives. I've often shared Ray Ortland's example of moment-by-moment prayers. Thank you, Lord. You are with me, Lord. I love you, Lord. Help me, Lord. Give me strength, Lord. Forgive me, Lord. You know best, Lord. I didn't understand that, Lord. And on and on it goes through the flow of life that we're communing with God in such a way, not to mention the moments where we just need to set aside time to, to prepare a prayer list of, uh, of needs that come to our attention and to enter into our closet and talk to Him, to be a praying church, to be a praying Christian. In fact, I don't know how you can be a Christian and not be a, a, a praying to the Lord in, in a regular way. So he tells this parable of this um, unjust judge. In a certain city, there was a, a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him. I need justice. I need justice. She had no recourse. She comes to this judge who's really bothered by seeing her. <laughs> Have you ever been, you know, where you've had to go back to a store and return a product? Or maybe something was a little dicey and took some time and... You feel like you had it resolved, and you walk back in, and you see the crestfallen face of the employee. You're back. The forlorn, I'd rather see anything than you. Look, (laughs) this judge had had it with this widow. She kept coming back. And, 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 And then we give an insight here in this parable. Hear what the unjust judge says. You know, I'm going to give her justice because I'm just sick of seeing her. God's not like that. He's not bothered when we pray to Him. The life, action, life application commentary, Christians should not give up praying to God even when facing indifference and powerful opposition. So, this sustaining prayer, how persistent are you in prayer? We'd rather do anything than pray. Our flesh just grates against it. Would we be a people who trust in the sufficiency of Scripture and are persistent in prayer, knowing that God is never bothered when we talk to Him about our problems? Some, some prayer requests, it's not over in a week or a year or a decade. We're called to continue to pray and to seek the face of God. So look at verse 8. I tell you, Jesus said, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. And he's referring to the elect in verse 7. Will not God give justice to his elect who call to him day and night? What's the answer to that? Yes, he will. Maybe not in this life, but he will have the final word. And Jesus said in verse 8, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now that's a question. That's a question, church. Will he find faith in you? Will he find you faithful? Doing what he's called you to do? What hope do you have of remaining faithful? I'm glad you asked. The Word of God in prayer. The Word of God in prayer. The Word of God in your life. 
conforming you into the image of Christ? In prayer, your relationship with God, where you praise Him and worship Him and confess your sins to Him and offer supplication to Him and pour out your heart to Him and cultivate intimacy and fellowship with Him? Faith is a gift. Faith can be built up or neglected like a muscle. It can be atrophied. Well, how how does that work? Just stop coming to church. That'll be one step in that direction. Just stop reading the scriptures. Just stop praying. If that doesn't bother you after a while, you need to really check to see if you're born again. And if that has been your slide coming into December 31st this morning, may God revive you. And that you would hear His grace say to you, begin again in me. And feel an urgency to get into the presence of God. Faith can be built up or neglected. In Jude, verse 20, but you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Bringing to bear all the disciplines that God has given to us. Let's close in this way. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Children, growing up in this church, will he find faith in your heart when he comes back? Jesus said, let the little children come to me. And maybe you're a child in this congregation to the level of understanding you have right now. What are your, what are your thoughts about why we gather? Why you go to Sunday school? Why you, why you hear the preaching of God's Word? What do you think? Do you ever have thoughts, children? I don't have to get serious about church. It's really my parents' commitment. I'm just here because they make me come. Maybe so. But you're hearing the truth of God in your life. And you're responsible for what you hear. The Scripture says, Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. Remember Him now. Hear the call of Christ in your life through the gospel. What about the youth in this body? Young men, young women, on your way to adulthood, in your teen years, age of opportunity. You've got tremendous opportunities before you that could be squandered or seized for God's glory. What about you, youth, to know Christ, to serve Christ? Will you live for Him? Will you follow Him in humble obedience in your youth years? Will you learn to deny yourself and take up the cross? Will you begin begin to see that Christ really is the only treasure? Will you treasure Him above all else? What about the men and women in this body, young and old? Will Christ find faith in you? When he returns, there's no substitute. The word of God in prayer, the word of God in prayer, serving the Lord together in this covenant family. Lord, by your grace and for your glory, you will find faith in us here. Even so, may it be to become a man or woman of the word. So the takeaway this morning, find renew 
a Bible reading intake in your life. Um, look at ways to meditate upon the Scripture. You see our fighter verses for this year. Bring that into your morning devotion time. Read it, hear it, study it, memorize it, meditate upon it day and night. Give yourself to Christ. Give your best to Christ. Give your all to Christ until we see Him. Would you bow with me in prayer? As we come to the close of the service, it really is a response to the gospel, to the things that you've heard. And I trust that this has been encouraging to you. There's some wonderful promises. There's some stark warnings in what we've talked about today. But if you're in need of salvation, the well men offer the gospel is given to you today to turn to Jesus Christ, to repent of your sins and to believe on him. Maybe in these closing moments, uh, you've seen some things get away from you this year. The beauty of God's grace is we can start again. And say with Moses, uh, John sang for us this morning, Psalm 90. There's that wonderful verse, verse 12. Teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. And may we be a church that humbly walks in obedience to Christ. That's our calling. May we do so faithfully. Father, lead us in these closing moments to surrender to you in all things. And we pray this in your mighty name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. If there are needs on your heart.